0: wall wall
1: just uh wall grant wall
0: wall okay so would that be grant wall in an english accent or- <laughs>
1: yeah, that's yeah it that sounds fine
0: okay sure hi everyone and welcome once again to the sports pro podcast my name is owen connolly i'm the editor at large at sports pro hope you're well we are going to be making a long overdue trip across the Atlantic to check in on the US sports industry today. Delighted to welcome back in his role as our guide to that part of the world, sports business reporter at Sportico and co-host of Sportacast, Eben Novi williams Hello, Evan. Hey, Owen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Always a treat to have you with us. Uh, we're going to be hearing as well from seasoned soccer reporter, Grant Wall on some of the latest around the abuse scandals in NWSL and the business of MLS and the world of soccer, basically, in North America heading into the 2026 World Cup. Um, But Eben, it's good to have you with us because we've had our own technical issues coming into this podcast that people won't be able to tell, hopefully, uh, from the finished products. But. You know, it's in, in keeping, it's, it's, it's a seasonal thing. Uh, supply chain problems affecting the American sports industry at this moment in time.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I, I talk and, and you do as well so much about how technology is upending the sports world. And then I go to try to record a, a podcast with someone across the Atlantic, and the technology doesn't work. And I think you know <laughs> how can the NFL give a multi-billion-dollar streaming deal to a uh, to a company over the internet when I can't even do a uh, do a recording over uh, o- over uh, over a simple platform? Uh, but but you're right, Owen. The 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 supply chain problems that are happening around the country, moving from digital to tangible goods um, happening around the globe are starting to hit the shores here in the US in a major way. Uh, And the sports industry is is no different. In in the past week or so, I've had conversations with people in front offices, with owners, with people who run arenas. Everyone is now starting to feel the pinch. And that, you know, it, it covers everything from food, concessions, you know, chicken wings, for example, becoming hard to find, all the way through hard goods that teams rely on. We did an event. This week with Todd Bowley, co-owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, he was saying that he couldn't get a Dodgers uniform with the with the commemorative postseason patch on it because of supply chain problems. So if, if you're the billionaire co-owner of the Dodgers uh, and you can't get uh, the, the jersey with the patch on it, that gives you a sense of kind of the scale of what we're talking about here. Teams have canceled their bobblehead nights, Upper Deck, the trading card company canceled a, a, a series of NF, NHL products because it couldn't get the product to the U.S. in time to, to, to create and, and make it and then sell it. Um, we're seeing kind of all across the ecosystem here, the supply chain problems. And, and I think the thing to, to really underline here is how long this is probably going to be going on. Nobody who follows that world closely seems to think that this is a one-month, a three-month, or even a six-month problem. Uh, people are kind of bracing for this to be a, 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 a headache and, and to be a complication well into the middle, if not the end, of 2022. So I think we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg of, of the many ways in which what's happening in global shipping, what's happening in global manufacturing is starting to affect uh, the at least the American sports business industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, let's walk it back for a second because it's it's an issue that's been high on the agenda in this country, but we have uh, created it through a slightly different set of political circumstances. Sure. Um, with the Brexit vote, as much as the and the the way in which that was enacted, as much as the 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 issues that have been caused by kind of absences through the pandemic and and measures that have been necessary to mit- mitigate that. What's been going on in north america what are what are the specifics and why are they affecting sports teams in this way
2: so I think it's a it's a mixture of things. One, a lot of American companies, as is true in the u k, do their manufacturing and their sourcing in other parts of the globe, so in places like Vietnam, in places parts of Africa other parts of of Southeast Asia. In places where there has been COVID complications for staffing factories, for sourcing materials, et cetera, um, that is kind of a, a works its way kind of slowly to the end of the chain to to consumers, and that's part of what's happening here in the U.S. Secondly, there is, and this may be happening in the U.K. as well, I don't know, but but there is a kind of a migration or an exodus from the workforce right here in the U.S. for low and and medium income workers, and that is affecting truck drivers. That's affecting people that work at ports. I was out in LA last week, two weeks ago. You could see the shipping containers and the massive cargo ships just kind of waiting in the bay to be unloaded. I think right now there's more than a half a million uh, cargo um, shipping containers on ships just waiting to be unloaded in the U.S. So I think it's, it's kind of every step of the chain, starting from where these products get sourced and where they get produced, all the way back to they get shipped, they arrive in the U.S., they need to be unloaded at the port, they need to be put on trucks, they need to be driven to wherever they're going in the country. And each of those steps is experiencing its own hiccups as well. Uh, so I think some of these products I'm talking about are, are maybe ones like like an upper deck where they're having trouble sourcing materials from afar. And then you have problems where the products may be here in the US. They may just be sitting on a ship uh in, in the Gulf outside LA and they need to eventually get on a truck or a train and and, and end up here in New York City. And that takes a lot longer. Than it would have, uh, and then the last thing I'll say on this is is pricing. I, I was reading the other day that 18 months ago it would have cost about two thousand dollars to ship a uh, shipping container across the Pacific. Now that price is up to twenty five thousand dollars. So companies are also having to make hard decisions about what they can afford relative to the new pricing um, and what they want to make, what they want to cancel, orders they want to nix, etc. So again, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a huge mix of all these different things happening at different points in the chain, um, but it is definitely starting to affect businesses here in the US.
0: How much is it within the gift of sports companies to do very much about this over the next 18 months or so? Is Is it going to be a question of Managing expectations and and riding out the worst of it, or are there going to be organisations that maybe operate at a kind of scale? I'm thinking of the the fanatics of this world, um, that they can do something to circumvent challenges in the global logistics market, which, let's be fair, is a little bit bigger than the sports industry.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And um, I think th- all the companies in the sports industry are having the same conversations that those not in the sports industry are having. How long do we think this is going to happen? What can we do in the immediacy to, to fix this? Uh, one of the pro- there was no kind of leeway, no margin for error in, in, in the shipping industry here in the U.S. Uh, before the pandemic. And then we had a, a massive error, and, and now we're seeing the problems here. I think one thing that companies want to avoid is spending a lot of money, spending a lot of resources. On a fix that takes eighteen months to to get in place, and then by the time it's up and running, uh, the hiccups and the bottlenecks further down the chain are are resolved, and then you've you've spent a lot of money that maybe you didn't need to spend. Um, so I think it kind of depends on the business. You mentioned Fanatics as a perfect example. So much of Fanatics' business happens in December, the the Christmas gift, the the holiday gift. Um, that whole economy is so much of the business for Fanatics, um, and they're going to need to, I'm sure tell their customers they may need to order things early they may need to be one of the things Fanatics prides itself on obviously is, is the speed with which it goes from order to delivery um and if those are if and I don't I'm not familiar with their specific supply chain and and what they're what they're struggling with and what they're not but if, if they are kind of caught up in this same problem, uh, there's no question that they're gonna to need to communicate de- that to people and, and and make sure that they can do whatever they can to keep December as important a kind of three month or a three week part of their calendar as it is in normal years. Well,
0: it's gonna be fascinating to watch that develop anyway over the next few months and see what kind of responses are spun out from it um, as mentioned at the top, we're kind of it's, it's a bit of a a bit of a breezy. Uh, run through a few different stories uh, to catch us up on, on what's been going on in the US. We normally would be spending a decent bit of time talking about betting. I'm sure that has been the the kind of the gathering uh, story for, for a couple of years now. Uh, it's, it's threatening to reshape entire parts of the American sports industry. But we have news just breaking. We're going to get a hot take from you on a deal that hasn't happened, and that's DraftKings a uh, proposed merger with the European betting giant Entain, which owns a number of brands here, some in the sports betting space, some in the poker and gaming space. Um, what, what do you make of that? What's what's happened there?
2: Yeah, I think DraftKings wanted to do this deal originally, I think for two reasons. One, Entain, you know, its brands are Ladbrokes, Coral, B-Win. They're, they wanted to have a global... Footprint and a takeover of a company that has all those kind of prominent European brands within it would have done that overnight. And that's something that I think is really valuable to DraftKings. Also, Intain has a really good back end tech platform. It's kind of rare in the gambling world to own all of your back end tech. DraftKings actually does as well uh, to a degree because it merged with SB Tech, but I think there was parts of the the Intain tech that were appealing to DraftKings. And I think those are the two main reasons. Uh, Why they were interested in the first place. This deal was always going to be extremely difficult to do, made additionally difficult by the fact that there was a third party kind of involved here. Uh, MGM Resorts uh, is a 50-50 partner here in the U.S. on BetMGM, which is the U.S.-based iGaming and sports betting platform uh, that the two of them combined on. And MGM, from the very beginning, the day this deal or proposal was announced, made it clear that they thought that they essentially had right of first refusal on any takeover offer for Intain. Um, and as a result, uh, these, these deals are hard to do. $22 billion deals are very difficult from the beginning, especially involving two public companies in two different uh, in, in two different countries. But the added complication of what do the kind of the bet, the bet MGM, what, what, what are the original papers the, the documentation say is a right for MGM? How do we make sure that they're happy with this deal to sign off on it? It seemed like the only result was going to be MG bet or MGM taking back control of, of full control of BetMGM, so taking back the fifty percent stake from from Entain. It just seemed like there was a little bit more complication than would have already been a very complicated deal. And as a result, it sounds like after a number of conversations between DraftKings and Entain, they've decided to walk away. Uh, I don't know if this is the end of of those discussions. I believe there's a, a six month maybe lockup period where th- they can't get a deal done. Um, if you remember, MGM also made a bid for Entain, a lot lower bid, $11, $11 billion last year. And ever since then, there has been kind of rumors, whispers in the marketplace that maybe MGM would come back with, with an offer as well. Um, that deal would be easier to do, obviously, because it doesn't involve the, the third party to a degree. Um, but I think in the end, this is a, a complicated deal at the start, made more complicated by the MGM's presence in here. And, and in the end, the two sides realized that it wasn't going to happen.
0: The numbers are are really fascinating in in that deal specifically because, as you say, MGM were there in January with a bid that seemed enticing at the time, but the Entain were were bold enough to knock back, and I think they've been proven right in that respect in, in in purely financial terms.
2: No question about that. I mean, when you reject an $11 billion offer and six months later get a $22 billion offer, uh, <laughs> I, I think that makes the first decision uh, pretty good in retrospect.
0: Which of those offers is more reflective of of where US sports betting is right now and where the confidence is? Is it the $22 billion or is, it, is, that, an, is that a sign of overheating or is that too much to read? into a single deal?
2: No, I mean, I think it's a lot to read into a single deal, but there's no question that, that it is extremely frothy right now. If if the supply chain problems are the, the the worry in the back of the heads of everyone in the sports business industry in the U.S., sports betting is the is kind of the opposite. It is the the excitement in the back of the heads of, of everyone in the U.S. sports betting, in, in the U.S. sports industry. The speed with which new states are coming online, the speed with which operators are popping up, and, and the, the massive amounts of money that they are spending right now to claw market share away from one another has become this massive boon for the entire industry here in the U.S. It, it is affecting advertising on television. Leagues are doing deals. Teams are doing deals. There's been a lot of consolidation here in the market as well. A number of companies have gone public here in the U.S., including both the big data providers, Sport Radar and, and, and Genius Sports. Uh, there, there's so much happening right now. In the sports betting industry. And and this is with, I think where we are right now, I think it's 20 something States are legal. It's about a third of the U S population and there's no online legal online betting right now in, in the biggest U S States. There's none in New York. There's none in California. There's none in Texas. There's none in Florida. So, so all this is happening even as the biggest markets in the U S still sit in the dark. Um, and those are going to change over time. Probably a few of those maybe in the next 12 months, uh, so there's no question. This is this has been a massive boost. It's going to add multiple billions probably to the NFL's uh, annual revenue when when it gets up and vibrant. Uh, it's going to add hundreds of millions, if not seven or sorry, if not nine figures to uh, to to other leagues as well. Uh, this is going to be a really big big boost, at least in the near term, as, as these companies continue to spend so much money.
0: And do we think that this strategy of of trying to unite european-based and, and north american-based entities is that is that something that's still going to have uh still going to be a popular route to to scale or will some of these complications start to come into the mix
2: yeah i think it's a, i think a maybe the, the most prominent easiest example there is flutter former paddy power which owns fanduel here in the u.s and they've been talking about spinning off fanduel uh, for a really long time um so I, yeah, I don't know if there's um I, I I certainly see the appeal for a company like a DraftKings to to have a, a presence around the globe. Um, but in, in the best example I think here right now, um, yeah, I think there 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 is some there there's some push within Flutter to maybe spin off FanDuel. A lot of the biggest European sports betting operators haven't really made a, a massive push, at least not yet. Here in the U.S., Bet365 is probably the one that that everybody in the industry kept talking about, kept waiting for their big entry. It's been fairly soft right now. They're not pushing it all that hard. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that there's there's obviously complications in that. And we have not seen yet a, um, a a kind of global operator really take root in the U.S. in the way that the daily fantasy companies and the U.S.-based casinos have.
0: Right. Let's let's change tack a bit with the last few minutes of your time we've got here, Eben, and, and go league by league into the major leagues and, and look at what people have been talking about. Um, the NFL, first of all, it's been yet again a, a kind of rampaging start to the season from a media perspective. We've just been talking about the NFL here because of the latest set of international expansion plans, which we talked about with Brett Gosper on the podcast uh not too long ago but inevitably the the focus is slightly different when uh when it's domestic and uh it's been social issues and uh internal politics and all the rest that have uh that have come to the fore in the last couple of weeks
2: yeah, there's a way to look at the NFL's business as as bulletproof in some ways. They have, as you said, the, these these 115 billion dollars of new media rights. They're they're doing really well from a TV standpoint early in this season. They have a 10-year labor accord, which is Critical to kind of making sure all your partners are are happy and willing to, to commit to a to a long term spend with you. The NFL is is the juggernaut in in American sports in almost every business metric, uh, but they're they're going through something here uh, and and you know I can I can fill you in on some of the details, but but the basis of it is um, there were some work, workplace harassment concerns for one of the teams, the Washington Football Team, uh, a couple of years ago, um, and the the team hired a, a group of lawyers to to go in and do an investigation. The NFL later took over that investigation. And we have slowly started seeing leaks of emails that were taken as part of that investigation. And it's been a kind of a cascading series of stories over the past few weeks the, the biggest one the first one uh John Gruden who was coach of the uh, of the Las Vegas Raiders who had been a coach in in a previous team and had also been a commentator on ESPN some emails leaked of his that were homophobic were misogynistic he had kind of taken aim at a lot of different parts of the NFL ecosystem pretty ugly emails he resigned shortly after the, the big group of them had come out um, and that kind of got everybody here in the u.S thinking okay we've seen a couple of what is what I Understand to be six hundred and fifty thousand emails. Um, the the couple that we've seen have already led to the firing or, or the resignation of of a fairly prominent NFL coach. Uh, what else might be in those documents? And and since then we've had a few more kind of tranches of emails leak. One of which showed uh, what the NFL later called an inappropriately cozy relationship between Jeff Pash, who is one of the NFL's chief legal counsels, uh, and uh, the president of the Washington or former president of the Washington Football Team, a guy named Bruce Allen, uh, in which they were clearly friends, which shouldn't be a problem as it is, but at some point Allen was complaining about NFL fines for for reporting injuries incorrectly that that Jeff Pash then argued to be rescinded at the NFL level. Clearly, emails that other teams would read and say, "Wow, it certainly seems like this Washington franchise is getting unfavorable or, or favorable and unfair treatment uh, from from the NFL." Um, so the NFL is now dealing dealing with that, kind of trying to figure out, you know, in light of a number of scandals that have come out and, and folks up in Boston with the Flategate and, and, and the whole scandal up there with Tom Brady. Uh, if they remember, the NFL took a very different tact with, with, with the with the New England Patriots in that time. It was not cozy. It was not an open communication about rescinding some of the penalties. The NFL was very firm with them. And I'm sure folks up in Boston are reading these emails between Jeff Pass and Bruce Allen and saying, wait a second, it's, it's totally unfair for the for the league to be playing favorites um and then you know more broadly, we have politicians here now pushing the n f l to make these six hundred and fifty thousand emails public the n f l p a the players union also pushing for these emails to be public the n f l closed this investigation about a month ago and fined the the Washington football team ten million dollars, which in my opinion is is the big concern here is that the n f l has 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 essentially said we've looked at everything. it was bad, it wasn't that bad. here's the fine. Um, and if these emails become public and suddenly th- there's there's way worse in there, and then everybody looks back and says, oh, that $10 million fine was nowhere near harsh enough, uh, there needs to be more done, then it looks like the NFL was trying to cover things up for one of its franchises. Uh, So we have not heard the end of this story in in any capacity, Uh, but uh, there's going to be continued, continued push on the NFL uh, to to do something publicly to reveal some of what's in those emails. Um, And my guess is we might hear, we might see leaks of of more and more of them come out and ones that that paint various people in the NFL ecosystem in a bad light.
0: Mm. I mean, the, the cynics take on this, I guess, would be there's been some expectation that something like this has been going on or things like this have been going on. Within the NFL, within football culture, uh, historically at least, the question then becomes about what happens next, I suppose, and 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 how the NFL can can begin some kind of meaningful reform culturally and uh, you know in terms of its governance to to stop this kind of thing from from happening again.
2: Yeah, and a lot of that I think, sadly, probably has to happen at the at the individual team level. You know, there's only so much that that Roger Goodell, sitting in his commissioner's chair in New York City, can do to you know enact change at, at these leagues that so the the NFL is structured in a way to give its 32 owners. Uh, a, a tremendous amount of power and say over their own little fiefdoms, and I'm sure if you were to dive into kind of the the last ten years of of every franchise, there would be some that would be kind of totally fine, and and there would be others that you'd look at and 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 you would see some things that that, that probably are are not okay. Um, but again, it's going to kind of be up to the NFL. Um, it's going to be up to the individual NFL teams uh, to do that. And and the other truth is that it's it's not a we don't see a lot of turnover on the NFL uh, ownership side it's it's not like other leagues here in the US, the NBA in particular, where, you know, there've probably been maybe 10 NBA teams that have sold in the past uh, in the past five to, to seven years. There's kind of like a constant refresh of, of new people, new ideas, new money into the NBA. It is not like that in the NFL. I think there have been maybe two majority NFL sales in the past decade. It just doesn't happen very often. And as a result, you get a set of owners that are more stuck in their ways uh, than, than you probably would if you had a, you know, a, a, a constant kind of carousel, uh, of new money coming into the league. Uh, but no question, this is as the NFL's business, as I said, kind of booms in almost every other aspect, uh, of, of a, it's a, it's going to be a $20 billion, probably $25 billion, a year league, uh, very shortly when these new media deals kick in, um, as all this happens, there is at least a, a kind of an ugly undercurrent that is happening right now. And and I don't think anybody knows the end game. It's going to be hard for the league to release these emails or the details of the investigation. I, I was saying this, uh, to a colleague of mine recently, when you conduct an investigation under the pretense that it is confidential, people tell you things that they don't want to be public. And, and I'm sure if the league were to say, OK, we're going to publish all this now, then they open themselves up to legal challenges from people who cooperated with this investigation originally under the idea that what they said would never would never be made public. Um, and it, it probably hurts the league in terms of future investigations. If this investigation does go public the next time, if I'm a team employee, the next time someone comes to me with a confidential uh, investigation, I'm, I'm going to be curious if, if, if this will indeed stay confidential so there's a lot of thorny issues here for the league uh for the for the lawyers at the league particularly but we have definitely not seen the end of of, of the email gate here in at the nfl that's for sure
0: okay well next up in complicated stories that we're not going to devote anywhere near enough time to on this podcast uh the nba is back it's uh started its new season in the last couple of weeks one big controversy i think has been dominating um in in, in that league and gets to the heart of a, a cultural issue that I think translates differently, perhaps um, particularly to the UK. But Kyrie Irving refusing to be vaccinated for COVID-19 and subsequently barred from competing in certain arenas due to state laws and so on. I mean, what's, what's the latest on that? And where does it really kind of frame some of the NBA's regulations around, you know, it's a socially responsible, or it's positioning as a socially responsible organization.
2: Yeah, it's it's a fascinating one, and as you said, the the Kyrie situation has kind of become kind of a lightning rod here in the U.S. for the 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 broader culture war that is happening um, politically in, in the country. As you said, Kyrie is refusing to get vaccinated. He because he plays in New York City, and there are city ordinances about you know who can be indoors and in, in, at at sporting events like that. Uh, he's not allowed to play at the Barclays Center where the where the team plays its home games. He's not allowed to practice with the team. Um, he's losing some pay as a result of that. Uh, it, it seems clear, at least from what he has said, very limitedly, that that he is not against the vaccine as an idea. I think he's against the the idea of a of a mandate, and he sees himself as kind of holding the torch for a lot of people out there who probably share his views. Uh, the NBA is in in large part a, a fairly liberal league. I, I can tell you there is. Probably a very small portion of of people within the NBA ecosystem that are supportive and, and excited and, and proud of Kyrie for taking the stand that he is the vast majority of people there, I, I think are extremely frustrated that it's become this kind of nationwide league wide story. Um, they also frustrated that, that he is, you know, that, that he is, that he is taking this step that is, you know, he's not practicing with the team necessarily, but you know, th- that a lot of people think is in danger could endanger his teammates and could endanger his family. Uh, so yeah, it's become kind of a big like. I'm curious uh, to t- t- you, Owen, the Premier League started up uh, a couple of months ago. Now, in in the run up to the NBA season, essentially every reporter asked every NBA player they could they could find, "Are you vaccinated? Why are you vaccinated? Why are you not vaccinated?" It, it became kind of a, a player by player story almost until we had figured out who the, the the last NBA players were that weren't vaccinated. Was it like that in the Premier League? I, I know the media is is a little bit different, and I'm sure the the thoughts on the vaccine are a little bit different over there
0: it's interesting because there's a difference between the the general vaccine picture what where you're mandated to uh to have taken a vaccine where the uptake is in the general population and the kind of the the culture war issue around vaccination is is not as pronounced here it does exist but you're talking about you know uh, there being much greater numbers of people in favor of taking vaccines and and mandating the the taking of vaccines to get access to certain spaces, much lower numbers opposed. I think that the rates among Premier League players are kind of slightly lower than among the general population. It has become an issue when players have, for example, had to travel for international games. But within the UK, at this moment in time, that hasn't become uh, the same kind of flashpoint. But I think that there's something bubbling under. I've spoken to a couple of people And there is definitely something bubbling under about the prevalence of some athletes in general to think differently about what they put in their bodies um, or think differently about their right to understand what they're putting in their bodies. Whether that's being applied rationally and sensibly in this case, I don't know. But I think it's, it's something that maybe hasn't made its way into the public domain as yet, but we might be hearing more about uh, in, in the months ahead. And, and maybe Kyrie is, is not going to be unique in that respect.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. And, and, and I I think the thing that has kind of thrown fuel on the fire here around Kyrie is, is one, he's a star. He's one of the, one of the best well-known and and best players in the league. And two, he plays in the biggest media market in the U S in, in New York city. Uh, and, and this would be very different. I think if, if he was, a the 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 seventh or eighth man on the bench in in Charlotte the the conversations would be very different but but the vaccine rates at least for NBA players and NHL players here in the U S are, are are really really high I think the NHL has I believe it's it's four maybe even three players left who are unvaccinated and the NBA is is not that far behind it's in the it's in the mid to high nineties from a vaccine adoption standpoint it just so happens that one of the league's most prominent faces uh, who plays in a city that has an indoor mandate, not all the cities do, but it's kind of a perfect storm uh, to make this Kyrie thing a a much bigger issue than it probably would have been if it were a different person or even a star in a different city.
0: Yeah. So to clarify, I think uh, we were seeing uh, a week ago, 68% of all Premier League players had had both doses of the vaccine. 81% had had at least one. Uh, Jonathan Van Tam, who's the uh, deputy chief medical officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, said that the uptake had broadly been excellent obviously you're also talking about a younger cohort of people so mm-hmm. uh, they're getting the vaccine later than others and uh, and perhaps getting it at slightly different times because of their training regimens and and so on
2: yeah that's interesting so it's it's a way lower number in 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 the uk around soccer from a vaccine standpoint than it is here professionally in the us and and, and leagues the nfl was probably the biggest in this but us leagues have made it clear that if if, if games have to be cancelled because of vaccine outbreaks among players or staff, that teams can be on the hook for that. There, there is now kind of a big financial, uh, a financial incentive at the league level for individual teams to try to do the best job that they can to prevent outbreaks. And 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 the easiest way, from what I understand, to do that is to make sure that everyone you have. Uh, is vaccinated, so it, it, there's no question that that leagues and the NFL was the leader in this. I mean, I've kind of put the hammer down uh, to its franchises and to its players, not outright demanding a mandate because I don't know if they even have the power to do that. A, a vaccine, I don't think they have the the power to do that, but doing everything else kind of around the edges to try to incentivize athletes to get vaccinated.
0: Not to show too much neglect to Major League Baseball and and the NHL, but we're we're getting to them. <laughs> we're getting to them last. Um... No uh, no editorial intent beyond the, the scale of the stories is, is meant there. But um, Major League Baseball coming to the end of its season as the others are, are kind of getting into the swing of things. A couple of interesting stories around MLB at the moment. One is a, a, a kind of rolling review of rule changes and stuff and perhaps an appetite for some bigger experiments in the, in the game. What's the, what's the mood like generally around baseball right now?
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of all uh, it, it's nervous, I think, is is the easy answer. As you said, the, the season's about to wrap up the Dodgers, the Astros and, and the Braves are meeting in the World Series. Um, looming on the horizon is what everybody expects to be uh, a very contentious uh, labor battle. Uh, I, I think everyone expects there to be at least some form of a work stoppage in Major League Baseball coming up. Uh, the the players in the league have been fighting very publicly for a number of years about a whole host of issues, many of them economic problems with with, with the game. Uh, so I think everybody around the league is, is is excited about the World Series, obviously, but is a little bit nervous about what happens next for for folks who who know. Back in 1994, there was a a, a Major League Baseball lockout that that really damaged the league. It damaged its perception both in America and globally. Um, it had a massive commercial impact on the game itself, um, and the and Major League Baseball, to be frank, is kind of slipping in its pop popularity right now. It has a an older demographic that is that is aging further upward. Uh the NBA is now, if you look at franchise valuations, the average NBA team is now worth more than the average major league baseball team, which might have even looked unthinkable even a decade ago. Um so, yeah, baseball is kind of at a crisis of conscience and and baked within that is as you said Owen trying to figure out what changes they can and should make to the game to make it more appealing. Um, And some of those things are moving the mound back. Uh, They've they've experimented the past couple of years with an extra inning, starting a runner on second base. Uh, So no outs runner on second base to to try to limit these massive extra inning games that they had seen. They've tried for a long time to speed the game up as well, putting pitchers on a clock, um, limiting the amount of pitching changes you can have, um, trying to get the 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 time of games down to 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 what you see in in a lot of other sports. Um, but there's no question, baseball is in a is in a in a strange place right now, and a lot of this is going to be predicated on what happens in this labor fight. Because if there's no season next year, it doesn't matter whether the games are two hours long or three and a half hours long. It doesn't matter if there's. 10 runs scored per game or five runs scored per game. uh, You kind of have to iron that stuff out first. Uh, So, yeah, I think uh, to to sum it up kind of easily for baseball, um, we're going to have a new World Series champion, uh, and and, and in some ways that's great. I think baseball might have preferred to have the Dodgers and the Yankees meeting in the World Series, but you can't always get the World Series that you want commercially. But, again, there's some dark clouds on the horizon for Major League Baseball, and the the tea leaves, at least right now, uh, don't look all that great.
0: And the NHL, I mean, we're going to talk to Grant Wall in just a, a moment about soccer. Uh, the popular perception is that the NHL is perhaps the major league that is at risk of being superseded if it hasn't been already um, by interest in domestic and, and international soccer. Um, but they have an exciting new franchise taking the ice this year. What, where, where are things with the NHL and with the Seattle Kraken?
2: So they are up to 32 teams. Um, the Kraken, as you mentioned, the, the, the newest expansion. The NHL has done really well in its last two expansions. The, the Vegas team that joined back in 2017, the, the Vegas Golden Knights, they, they were immediately really competitive. Uh, it, it made Las Vegas a pro sports team. Town and as, and as we know, there's now an NFL team. There's a baseball team looking at joining. I would not be shocked. You can ask Grant this would not be shocked if there's an MLS franchise in Las Vegas um, announced within the next 12 months. Um, the Vegas Golden Knights were about as successful uh, a U.S. sports expansion as we've probably ever seen. Um, and now in Seattle, which feels like a no brainer, a team that used to have a bas- a city that used to have a basketball team. That team moved very controversially to Oklahoma City, has kind of been starving to have uh, another professional franchise alongside the Seahawks and the Mariners. Um, they chose a great name. The Kraken, uh, a lot of people feel like the NHL is a bit conservative in, in the way it approaches things. Uh, they kind of broke out of that mold to a degree with the team name. They've got a great uniform, a great logo. I think there's a lot of excitement uh, about uh, about the Seattle franchise. And, and again, the NHL likes to be kind of a first mover of sorts in this way. I, I think there's going to be an NBA franchise back in Seattle soon. Uh, and and it it helps the NHL to make this move before the NBA team gets there, as opposed to making it uh, making it after. Uh, and but the NHL they have new TV deals, new new six hundred million dollar a year TV arrangement in the US with, with Turner and ESPN. Uh, there is excitement that that will bring increased exposure for the league. Um, one of the benefits of partnering with ESPN is you get the promotional the the, the peripheral promotional engine that is. ESPN, and, and you can see it already for if you watch SportsCenter, if you watch ESPN's talk shows, you see any more NHL scores on the bottom. You see little widgets, little advertisements about the next game that the that ESPN has. You even see injury updates and, and, and little news bits that, that ESPN never would have showed uh, as of two years ago or even last year. So th- there's excitement in, in the NHL. But as you said, MLS is kind of nipping at its heels. We've done these valuations across all of U.S. sports. The average NHL franchise is worth $950 million. The average MLS franchise is worth five fifty. million. Uh, a number that blows my mind when you consider that Newcastle just sold for four hundred and ten. Um, but uh yeah, the MLS has its own media rights coming up soon. It's not gonna be anywhere near as big a deal as what the NHL has. But from a from a commercial standpoint, especially from a franchise valuation standpoint, we're starting to see MLS creep up into the big five conversation.
0: Okay. Well, we'll pick up with all that uh with Grant in part two. We're also gonna be talking about the latest. Fallout from the NWSL crisis and uh, the latest in the international game going into the World Cup in Qatar and then in North America in 2026. That's all coming up just after this. The Sports Pro OTT Summit, the essential event for the sports streaming and digital media sector, is back from the 15th to the 18th of November. And we're just taking a moment to let you know about a special offer for our Sports Pro podcast listeners. We've got two days in person at London's Tottenham Hotspur Stadium with world-class speakers, hundreds of influential delegates, the third annual Sports Pro OTT awards and who knows, maybe even a live podcast. Then we have two more days of unmissable online sessions where you can hear from the likes of the NFL, Discovery, FuboTV, Sport Radar, TikTok and many more. You'll find all the details at sportspro-ott.com. And if you use the offer code POD30, you'll also be able to pick up a 30% discount on the cost of your pass. That's 30% off entry to the SportsPro OTT Summit using the code POD30, P-O-D-3-0. Just a little something from us to say thanks for listening. We hope to see you there. Grant Wall, welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. It's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to be speaking to you. Uh, we've got a few things. We're going to make a bit of a, a whistle-stop tour of the, uh, the kind of soccer landscape in the US just at this moment in time. Obviously, it's kind of a bit of a pivotal few years we're heading into um, when it comes to the game in that part of the world. Um, there's some good news. There's some interesting news. Unfortunately, we have to start with Some of the bad news or, you know, a story that has dogged the sport for the last few weeks in the US and uh, perhaps spoken to some cultural issues um, that have been a lot longer standing than that and are only now really coming to light. And that, of course, is in the uh, National Women's Soccer League. Uh, Lisa Baird, the commissioner, resigning a few weeks ago due to these historic uh, abuse and harassment scandals through the college and professional game there. What's the what's the latest on that as far as the response goes, as far as the rebuilding of trust in women's soccer goes?
1: Yeah, it's been a, I think, fair to say, cataclysmic couple of weeks for the NWSL, for women's soccer in the United States, because uh, there's been reporting in, in a couple of different publications that kicked this off. Uh, Meg Linehan, a reporter for The Athletic, with a blockbuster story about... Paul Riley, coach of the champion, North Carolina Courage, uh, having sexually coerced players allegedly. Yeah, a lot of detail in the story, the victims coming forward by name, multiple victims. Um, and Paul Riley was fired, and uh, there's all sorts of investigations happening right now, including by the NWSL, by U.S soccer, and FIFA has said that they uh, may be conducting an investigation as well. We'll see if that's connected to the U.S. soccer one. But um, there's also reporting in the Washington Post by Molly Hensley Clancy about just uh, an old boys club culture inside the Washington Spirit NWSL team. And their owner, Steve Baldwin, is in the process of selling the team. As you mentioned, Lisa Baird, the NWSL commissioner, resigned Uh, in large part due to uh, what came out that she and her office didn't really respond to uh, the Paul Riley allegations by a a former player for the Portland Thorns. Um, And, you know, she's not the only one who's going to end up losing her job here, I think, and and we'll await the results of the investigations uh, that are taking place. But, Uh, The U.S. Soccer hired Sally Yates, a very prominent uh, Washington uh, person with a a very good reputation from the Obama administration, and uh, we'll see what her investigation uncovers. But a lot of the talk over the last couple of weeks has been about just protect the players and a lot of really powerful emotional um, things that the, the players themselves have done, gestures, shows of unity and support on the field during games. And all that continues because uh, this is going to be a long process.
0: I mean, as you say, the response from the players has been very forceful. And a lot of them have been saying, we've been telling you this and you haven't been listening, which as you as you intimated, there is a big reason for, for Lisa Baird stepping down. But is there any sense yet or is it better to wait for the investigations to make a judgment like this of how it was allowed to persist for so long and how, you know, a lid was kept on this, uh, at the levels that it was.
1: I think we have enough information that, um, we can have opinions about how things were handled. You know, for example, Paul Riley was let go from the Portland thorns in 2015 after they had an investigation and the Portland thorns only said publicly, we wish him well. And they didn't even share, um, Apparently, like the question is, how much was shared internally in the league? Because Paul Riley was subsequently hired by another team in the NWSL in Western New York that eventually moved to North Carolina. Um, And it seemed like there was a very much a a lawyer's perspective of, you know, as as we would say in the US, CYA, cover your ass um, instead of protect the players. And uh, and the, the players and, and fans are rightly very upset about the way this happened. Uh, and uh, there seems to be not a, a system in place in recent years to adequately respond to allegations of seriously improper behavior like this.
0: It's imperative, it would be under any circumstances, that the response to this is adequate and above and beyond, quite frankly. Um and that the right structures are put in place for the long term. But this is a pretty pivotal moment for women's soccer in the US as well, more generally. We've had a lot of conversation about the national team. Uh, Obviously, they have an ongoing uh, legal dispute with their employers about equal pay when they're on international duty. Um, And that's been very high profile and has has brought issues of kind of respect and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and professional treatment to the fore. But you also now have NWSL... Wanting to make a bit of a step change commercially, you've got the entry of Angel City on the horizon. Some very, very high-profile investors involved with that team from the worlds of, of technology and entertainment. You know, they they really do need to to make sure that this is something that they can put way beyond them and and do that in the right way by uh, by addressing the issue rather than the story.
1: Yeah, you know, the big news over the last week is that uh, an interim. CEO has been hired by the NWSL Executive Committee. That person is Marla Messing, who is highly respected. She was in charge of organizing the Women's World Cup here back in 1999, that became such a, a huge cultural event in the United States, really transcended sports. Um, and so that's a message. We'll see what she's able to accomplish as eventually the NWSL will hire another commissioner. Uh, You know, one thing that Lisa Baird actually did pretty well was work with the business community and increase national sponsorships in the NWSL uh, and and help bring new owners into the league. You know, the league is growing and Angel City starts next season in LA. They recently announced they're going to have 11,000 season ticket holders already Uh, which is beyond what most NWSL teams average in terms of attendance, uh, except for Portland. Um, You have another team coming in in San Diego that's run by Jill Ellis, the two-time World Cup winning former U.S. coach. And uh, the team in Kansas City actually is new. Uh, They took on the former Utah team, but they've been announcing some really – uh, promising projects including a 15 million dollar new training facility uh, and it sounds like they have even more announcements on the way in terms of infrastructure and um, you know a name for their team, but they've already become part of the Kansas City community that's actually where I'm from so I, I've kept a close eye on that one
0: and what's your impression been of the response from American sports fans from the athlete community uh, and, and the impact that this could have? On the progress of women's soccer is there is there a sense of reputational damage or is there a sense that this is something that for all that's happened people can can put together a, a constructive path out of it
1: i think there's a, a feeling that this women's soccer league can survive this but they actually really do need to do the right things now and there's a lack of trust right now in Essentially, the men who started this league and are the owners of this league, if they haven't done the right things in the past, will they do that now? And if they don't make the right changes, the league might not survive. So there is a, it's, a, it's a very strange moment because the, the male owners in this league and, and mostly men who run these teams – do need to do a lot of really concrete things to earn back trust. And that's going to be a long process. And And we'll see if they're able to do that um, because the fan base is there and it is growing in, in women's soccer for the NWSL, but um, they're angry. A lot of them right now, and there have been protests and, um, you know, we're nearing the end of the NWSL season, you know, the playoffs start soon and, we're going to continue to see protests around these games in the stands on the field, um, And, it, you know, this reckoning is just going to need to continue.
0: Mm. And I mean, there've been uh, a few moments of recognition as well in the, uh, in the women's internationals played in this part of the world over the weekend. And I'm sure there is a, a long, long distance left to run in this story. And, and we hope that, some positive and, and meaningful steps are taken. But let's uh, let's move on and look at the sport. I mean, the men's game, but also the health of the sport more generally in, in North America. Uh, of course, there is a North American World Cup on the horizon in a little under five years' time. Um, US and Canada both in contention for progress maybe to, to the World Cup next year. I mean, the US you would expect to see there. Canada, it's been a, a little while, but they've had some fairly positive results. What's the, what's the mood around uh, North American soccer just now going into a you know, fairly pivotal few years?
1: Well, I mean, on the field, there's a lot of excitement around these CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers. They're squeezing 14 World Cup qualifiers into about a six-month period with three games on most of these windows. So they've already played six games. And it is interesting that the top three teams, all of which will qualify automatically for Qatar... Um, are the big population countries of North America, USA, Mexico, and Canada. The surprise team, to some people, maybe being Canada, which hasn't qualified for a men's World Cup since 1986, but they have the best player in CONCACAF on the men's side, Alfonso Davies from Bayern Munich, who has become an absolute superstar. Um, And they have other good players too, guys like Jonathan David, Kyle Lahren, Atiba Hutchinson, Uh, Canada has always had individual talents before, but they've always sort of been a whole that's less than the sum of their parts uh, over the years. And that's not the case anymore. They have a good coach, John Herdman, who's very charismatic, used to coach the Canada women's team uh, before he moved on to the men, which doesn't happen very often in international soccer, but um, they're getting great results they Canada got a, a point at the United States. They got a point at Mexico. They've had a harder set of games so far than the U.S. or Mexico. So I think Canada is going to qualify, and we're seeing this happen as you mentioned. All three of those countries are going to co-host World Cup twenty twenty-six, and um, and probably not have to go through a qualifying process for that as the co-hosts. But um, I think there's a level of excitement around soccer in, in, in North America right now that, that maybe we haven't seen for a while. Obviously, the U.S. and Mexico have a great rivalry. They play each other uh, in Cincinnati on November 12th in World Cup qualifying. But uh, there's a lot going on at, with the national teams right now. There's a lot going on at the club level with the Mexican League and you know, being so popular, not just in Mexico, but in the United States. And MLS uh, nearing the end of its season and heading into the playoffs with you know, 24 teams in the U.S. now and three teams in Canada. The
0: the expansion of MLS continues. Of course, there's going to be another new team next year um, and something that has drawn a fair bit of interest, a fair bit of fascination, to be honest, from certainly the football business community in, in this part of the world is some of the valuations that you're seeing of these MLS teams. Um you know, we've had a, a pretty contentious takeover in England in in recent weeks. I'm sure you've uh, seen some news about that. But you know, the, the valuation there was lower than some of what we're seeing in MLS, and that speaks to a few things. Some of which are kind of more tangible than others. But one of the things it does speak to is a sense of potential, um, and whether that's purely within a U.S. market, whether that's a North American market that doesn't just incorporate Canada, but perhaps greater interplay between mls and um and, and the league in mexico which i've temporarily forgotten how to how to do the pronunciation but liga mx basically what's the sense is there a, a feeling growing that there's a, some shared destiny between those three countries or will we see the u.s try and exhibit greater control what, what do you think is going to happen in the club game
1: It's really interesting to me because I see these valuations from respected sports business publications in the United States saying that you have MLS teams in two or three cases being valued at 800 million U.S. dollars, and that's twice as much as what Newcastle United just sold for, and it it almost doesn't seem real to me i've covered mls since the start of the league back in 1996 i remember when teams were being sold you know new teams for expansion fees of five million dollars so to see 800 million you're kind of like what um now a couple things to keep in mind are mls does not have promotion and relegation and and so soccer in america does not and so there's no chance of having your MLS team drop down to the second tier, and that's worth a lot of money. Uh, we've seen European soccer team owners actually try to institute a super league earlier this year in which 15 of those teams, the biggest ones, would not have had any chance of being relegated from the super league. So that type of control of revenue and knowing what it's going to be moving forward is really important to owners. And if you're an MLS owner, you have that. Um, Another thing is that a lot of these MLS teams, these valuations are connected to real estate, you know, the stadiums that they own, the training facilities that they own, which in most cases are extremely new in the case of a team like LAFC. It's a state, a really nice stadium in an urban part of Los Angeles. So that's worth a lot of money. I still don't see, the connection though between the revenues that mls teams currently have in the valuations because then you're getting into what we talk about with you know promise for the future but you know mls keeps adding teams they're at 27 this season they're going to be at 30 in a couple years um there's a lot of you know competition among cities and ownership groups to become one of those new teams uh it's looking like las vegas is probably going to be the next city to get an MLS team. Um, so as someone who's followed the history of the league and was around when there were many years when MLS couldn't find any interest in adding teams and they even cut teams back in 2001 down from 12 to 10, it's pretty incredible yeah. to, to see where it's it's come. Um, and it's a real business, MLS isn't going anywhere, it's, it's not gonna fail. But I also want to see them do better in the television area and and you know get a bigger audience to watch games because the bigger professional sports leagues in the United States and around the world, the majority of their revenues come from television. That's not the case with MLS still. You know, the, the majority of their revenues come from gate receipts, attendance. And they have a new television deal starting in 2023. I think we're going to not see any movement on those negotiations until after the Premier League rights situations get settled here in the United States, which will probably be in November. But um, there's a lot to be excited about with MLS, but I think there's still some unknowns there.
0: Mm -hmm. We'll we'll come on to that Premier League conversation in in just a sec. But to go back to my last question, which I appreciate was quite a long and rambling one, but... (laughs) the um, is an answer to that audience question, particularly the TV audience, greater association with, uh, with clubs in Mexico and maybe more of a kind of CONCACAF wide approach uh, in, in the years ahead?
1: Well, we recently had an announcement here that starting next year, MLS and Liga MX are going to shut down their respective domestic leagues for a month. Uh, in late July, early August, and have a tournament together in which every single team from the two leagues is involved, and it's going to be organized like a, they say, like a World Cup. Um, we haven't seen all the details on that yet, but uh, there had been talk about even a potential merger between Liga MX and MLS. I don't know if we're going to get to that point anytime soon because you're talking about a lot of teams um But it's a pretty big announcement to form a month-long tournament when you completely shut down your domestic league. So we'll see if that's successful. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, Mexican teams are very popular in the United States. That has a lot to do with demographics and immigration over the years. The most popular soccer team in the United States is the Mexican men's national team. They get great ratings on spanish language television in the united states and and the league is the the mexican league is the most popular domestic league on american television when you include spanish language television so it's even more popular than the english premier league or mls or anything like that so there's a business opportunity here obviously and and i think the owners of the league mx teams are the main ones instigating this they see the growth of the business here in the United States, and they want a bigger part of it.
0: Just to take us towards the close, we you mentioned the Premier League rights renewal, which is coming up. Uh, NBC have, have done a a pretty stellar job really in, in growing and maintaining a presence for the Premier League among sports fans in the US. Um, we've seen speculation about certainly a very healthy market uh, for the Premier League, which is not the case everywhere. But The interest and the the potential competition between broadcasters um, could well be good news for them in a couple of months' time.
1: Yeah. I mean, NBC's done a really good job of building the Premier League audience in the United States since they took over in 2012. They've extended those rights. Uh, They're finishing up a current six-year deal. It sounds like from the reporting I'm seeing that it's going to be another six-year deal, likely. I know the Premier League wouldn't mind even doing nine, but I think it's going to be six. And there's even talk of maybe even splitting the Premier League rights among more than one uh, broadcaster here in the United States. We'll see how all of that shakes out, but it's going to go for a lot of money. Um, And there's a lot of interest here, not just from NBC, which definitely wants to keep the Premier League, but also CBS has become a big soccer broadcaster kind of out of nothing over the last two years they came in with a bang and got the uefa champions league rights on the men's side Uh, they've got the italian league they've got half of the u.s world cup qualifiers and the nwsl women's league among other things Um, espn has made a big play for soccer rights they recently got la liga from spain they already have the bundesliga uh, and they have half the mls rights so, you know, those are the sort of the main players involved. We've seen Fox, which has the World Cup rights, change their strategy and get out of essentially the club soccer space. And they have gobbled up rights for big international summer tournaments. It sounds like Fox is going to get the Euros, uh, which ESPN has had since 2008. Um, so there's, there's a lot of competition. And then you still have the streamers like Amazon and Netflix especially Amazon sort of hanging around out there and people wondering if they might uh, be part of this Premier League rights situation. But that's the big one that's coming up in November. It sounds like we'll find out um, which U.S. broadcaster is going to get the next probably six years of the Premier League. And that's going to have a knock on effect because the MLS rights, my guess is, is that one of the bidders that doesn't get the Premier League rights will end up getting the MLS rights for their next package.
0: Mm. What's the audience for the Premier League? Or what's the, what's the next target for the audience for the Premier League? Because they did an intriguing little deal recently with Apple TV Plus and the producers of uh, Ted Lasso, which is a series that's got a, an awful lot of attention. Not exactly a kind of um, grittily realistic depiction of Premier League football, but it will have the official marks and so on uh, from from next season tv season onwards um you know is that kind of more casual overlap audience is that is that a realistic target for for the premier league in in north america
1: i mean it's a really intriguing possibility because the premier league and broadcasters here in the u.s are always trying to expand the audience and um, i don't want to underestimate the possibility that ted lasso which has become this very much you know, a cultural uh, you know, touchstone in the last year or so here in the U.S. that that could bring in some potential soccer fans or at least new people to watch the sport. And it's kind of crazy because season two of Ted Lasso had even less soccer in it than season one. And as you mentioned, it's it's not like it's lifelike necessarily, but it's such a good show in other ways that I think even soccer fans here have tended to forgive the soccer scenes from not being the most lifelike so um i i would like to know now that they've done this deal ted lasso for season three which is the last season of the show with the premier league might we see more soccer in season three than we saw in season two uh is part of the show and who knows but um i do know how big the audience has gotten for ted lasso and uh, you know, recently had Nick Mohammed, the guy who plays Nate on my podcast. Um, and, you know, I've had Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt on my podcast as well. And, and just judging from the numbers I got on, on those podcasts, there's definitely a lot of fans of Ted Lasso here in the United States. Um, and I think the Premier League would be smart to try to take advantage of that. It also makes me wonder if, you know, is there any chance Apple might be in the running for some Premier League rights, but um, we'll see how it all shakes out. But it's it's certainly not a bad thing for soccer in America when a show that has a connection to soccer gets so big.
0: And just finally, before I let you go, Grant, you're going to be making a trip over the Atlantic to cover some European games this week. Um, Champions League still has an enormous amount of appeal in in North America. The Euros took off perhaps more than that tournament has done in the past. What's the balance between interest? in international soccer or soccer from, you know, imported games versus MLS and, and domestic stuff? And what how's that going to shake out over the next few years?
1: Well, there's definitely a lot of interest in the highest levels of the sport in the United States and an acknowledgement that while MLS has grown, it's not as good as European soccer. But I, I do think there's, there's quite a few fans now that That like both, you know, who like being able to go to a soccer game, a first division game in the city where they live, but then also want to watch Champions League or the English Premier League. Um, The sport of soccer as a whole has gotten pretty big already in the United States. I would say it's bigger than the sport of ice hockey now. Um, And in the future, all trends well for the demographics, the young demographics that are interested in the sport of soccer in the United States. But um, if you're MLS, I do think you need to be wary that um, all of the, the European, the top leagues and players and teams, they're trying to get bigger in the United States as well. And so when you look at the audiences for the biggest games from Europe, if it's like UEFA Champions League, uh, they're usually slightly bigger in some cases than, um, than for the domestic leagues. You know, Timing-wise, it's not perfect because we're talking about Tuesday and Wednesday afternoons in the United States when you have people at work, but you're still seeing audiences of over a million in the U S for big champions league games. Uh, you're seeing those in English language uh, on CBS. You're seeing them in Spanish language on Univision. Um, so I would say that the, the soccer audience is pretty, is, is pretty big in the U S but it's also very fragmented. People here watch a lot of different leagues, uh, from around the world and so the challenge is to find the properties that are going to get the most eyeballs and champions league obviously is going to do that english premier league to some extent uh, league MX, occasionally mls but personally i'd like to see mls get some more reasons for big national audiences to tune in we had a little bit of that when zlatan ibrahimovic played for the la galaxy and we had carlos Vela playing for LAFC and both teams were good, but neither one of those players has had much of an impact and, and Zlatan left out uh, of the last couple of years. And, and so there's not a lot of big ticket games in MLS at this point to draw the big national audiences.
0: Speaking of audiences, where can, uh, where can our audience find you these days, Grant?
1: So all my writing is at grantwall.com and that's a Substack newsletter. And so you can sign up uh, free or paid. We have free posts, uh, paid posts, and you can get all my posts in your inbox just by signing up with your email. Uh, I am doing a lot of, as you mentioned, uh, reporting uh, of of high quality stories. I'm going to Europe to uh, report two or three stories, leaving tonight, Uh, doing a story in Madrid, doing a story uh, on this FC Sheriff Crazy story in in Champions League, uh, the team that beat Real Madrid. I'm going to go to where they are in Tiraspol in uh, Moldova for their next game against Inter and write about that. But uh, I'm really excited about all the stuff I'm doing. I got a podcast called Football with Grant Wall. I signed with CBS TV. Um, So I'm definitely keeping busy these days.
0: All right. Best of luck and thanks very much for your time. Thank you. That's it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thanks to Grant Wall for his time there. Thank you once again for joining us to Eben Novi williams
2: Thanks, Owen. That was
0: fun. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro podcast is published by Sports Pro Media.